Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for listening in. I have a great conversation for you today about this week's Parsha, which is Vayetze. Vayetze is Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, through chapter 32, verse 3, and it is the story of Jacob. We met Jacob last week alongside his twin brother Esau, and we saw him swindling Esau out of the birthright and the blessing. The Parsha ended last week with Esau threatening to kill Jacob and Jacob running off to the north country, to the land of Padan Aram, which is where his mother Rebecca came from, and where he hopes to find a wife. This week's portion shows Jacob spending a total of about 20 years living in the house of his uncle Lavan, where he marries the two daughters of Lavan, has a number of children. Jacob's 12 sons will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then at the end of the Parsha, we watch Jacob headed back toward the land of Canaan. So my interview today is with Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Rabbi Middleman is a really interesting rabbi and a really interesting thinker. And as you'll hear more about later, he's the founding director of an organization that deals with the intersection between science and religion, or science and Judaism. And that'll play a fair amount into the conversation that we have, both about the Parsha and about other things. Now, as a reminder, we will talk for about the first 10 minutes about this week's Torah portion, and then we take a very short break and we go on to talk about all things Jewish. And now here's my interview about Vayetze with Rabbi Jeff Middleman. All right, Rabbi Jeff Middleman, thanks for being with me and welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you, Micah. It's great to see you, Rabbi Micah Streifer, a classmate. I know it's been, we've known each other for quite a long time since our days in our old stomping ground of Cincinnati, Ohio, back in the middle 2000s, right? That's right. It's all, almost almost a love shalom, but it's, uh, I, I, I was there in 02. I did my first year in Cincinnati, and then you, I think you guys came, um, and we were, we were, we overlapped for, I think, three of our five years together. That's right, because I was in the group that went to Israel first year and then came back to Cincinnati. Um, anyway, today you are the director, founding director of an organization called Sinai and Synapses, which deals with the intersection between science and religion or science and Judaism. And I want to ask you a lot about that a little, a, a few minutes from now, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. But, great, but let's talk Parsha. So this week we're reading Vayetze. Vayetze is, of course, the story of Jacob, or the middle segment of the story of Jacob. We see Jacob hightailing it away from his family in Beersheba to go to the north and find a wife or two or four and make a family for himself, build a life for himself, get the heck away from his brother who just threatened to kill him because of some questionable actions that happened last week. And one of the things that comes up this in this week's Parsha, which you raised with me previously and I, that we wanted to talk about a bit, is the question of some of the dishonest behavior of some of the characters in this Parsha. We see certainly Jacob, who's, that's our ancestor, right? Jacob is Israel. He's us. 
behaving in some interestingly questionable ways. He swindles his brother out of the birthright and the blessing. Rebecca, his mother, is also involved in some of that. And then we kind of see Jacob getting his comeuppance from Laban, his uncle, and the father of his wives, who then sort of swindles him right back. So what do you think is going on here? Why do you think the Parsha contains this kind of behavior? It's a great question. And it's, and it's something, there's a line that I love, which said that there's nobody in the Hebrew Bible that you would want to grow up and marry your child. And I think <laughs> there's, there's nobody who's, who's a really perfect paragon. And, and I think some of the challenges of life is lying. And, and we tend to lie to ourselves and we lie to, to others. And we don't always do it intentionally. I think that's one of the interesting questions about Jacob of what is it that he's doing intentionally in terms of, of deception and what is lying to himself? That's really interesting. So it, it always seems to me that Jacob is intentionally, he's trying to trick other people. So where in here do you see him lying to himself? So I, so I think uh, some of it is feeling that what he is doing is justified. I think trying to be able to even from last week's Torah portion of taking the birthright and taking taking the blessing. Um, he tries to be able to get a little bit more of the resources from Levon of saying, the, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and there's also, when we think about lying, we tend to think of it as a, as a bright line of like, these people tell the truth and these people lie. And there's actually, there's, there's a spectrum. And, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, particularly since, since COVID, of, the spread of misinformation and what is the difference of accurate information versus information that was accurate but has changed to what is inaccurate but well-meaning to mm -hmm. what is willful deception and and we kind of we're always trying to say what i'm sharing is truthful but we don't know until we actually until the other person hears it was it actually accurate or not and so so jacob i think there are definitely elements where there is a willful deception there but I think there are some pieces where, where at least we read it thousands of years later as, as well-meaning, but not accurate and, or, or well-meaning where in some ways the ends do justify the means for him. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a section in this week's Parsha where Jacob, he essentially tricks Lavan such that Jacob will end up with a large and hearty flock of sheep. He says to Lavan, I'll just keep all the speckled sheep. And apparently speckled sheep were less common. So this sounds like a good deal for Lavan. Jacob's just going to get this small number of speckled sheep. And then he goes about essentially fixing the flocks through various um, husbandry um, practices so that there will be a lot of speckled sheep. And then he, when he's talking to his wives, Rachel and Leah, later on, he attributes this to God. He said, I saw in a dream an angel came to me and said to do this. And so as I'm reading this, and I never thought about this today until you brought up this issue. I wondered, does Jacob believe his own story? Is right. Jacob, is he, is he just making this up? Did he just trick his, trick his father-in-law and now he's uh, trying to get away with it by saying God told him to? Or is Jacob actually telling what feels to him to be the truth, which is to say it was destiny that I would... That I, that, that I would end up with these flocks and the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. We are very good at self-deception, um, right? Nobody is the villain of their own story. Everyone is always the hero of their own story. Mm. Uh, we, we tend to think about how, when we think about problems in, in, in this world, whether they're interpersonal or societal, we tend to think about 
all the ways in which what we meant to do, this is, this is what I meant to do. I'm sorry if that hurt you. I'm sorry if that was the impact. Here's what I meant to do. We think a lot about what we intended and not so much about the impact on others. But when it happens to us, we think about the impact on us and not about the other person's thought process. It's a really interesting element of our political culture. Now, you live in the States. I live in Canada. But I think we see this in lots of political cultures where two sides look at each other and they say, you're lying. And they both seem to genuinely believe that the other is lying and spreading misinformation, whether it's about masks or whether it's about vaccines or whether it's about um, about the integrity of elections. Both sides seem to believe that when what they say is true and what the other side is is saying is is falsehood and intentional falsehood. And it's just extraordinarily poisonous when the political right. culture is built on that. Right. There's a, there's a great book by, uh, by a psychologist named Robert Kurzban called Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite. And that's exactly what you were just bringing up, that everyone's always, I'm right. And it used to be you're wrong and now it's you're evil. And, and there's not an open conversation of asking someone, you know, what gets you up in the morning what keeps you up at night and being able to say, like, these are the big issues that we've got to be dealing with. Political questions are really about how do we allocate scarce resources? People need a certain amount of resources. And so mm-hmm. the, these arguments are how do we get the, the most resources that we that we want or need in a, in a given situation? Right. And when we're acting out of fear mm-hmm. and when we're acting out of a state of where there's dehumanization involved. And by dehumanization, I mean not seeing the other as a, as a full human, seeing them as a caricature, seeing them as a liar, right? A liar as opposed to someone who is telling a lie or someone who is telling a, a statement that I disagree with. Liar is, is a statement about what someone is versus what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think we then... We, we then act out of our own fear and we tend to become more and more polarized in cases like yeah. that. And I think the other thing that's, that's, that's really important is do we view the resources as scarce or, or do we try to grow the abundance? Hmm. Um, and that's, there's, there's a, a wonderful exhibit, uh, exhibit and, and an example of this. Uh, there was a, a, a study that was done of how do we expand resources? Am I gonna be selfish or am I gonna be generous? And there were questions of if you're too generous, you're going to be a doormat. And if you're, uh, but if you're too strict, nobody's going to work with you. And so how do you balance the Dean and the Rachamim? And that's what happens with Jacob and Levon is it, it actually, the relationship devolves. They, they're fighting over the scarcity as opposed to trying to say, if we work together, we can actually increase the amount of resources that we have. Yeah, so why do you suppose that the Torah portrays our ancestors in these in these ways you know why why is it that the torah has given us a series of stories to use your language about people we wouldn't want our children to marry and then said to us these are your ancestors israelites so i think it's a question of are stories descriptive or prescriptive are stories meant to be able to describe the reality of the world and human interactions? Are they supposed to be prescriptive of, of saying what to do? And I think the laws, at least in the Torah, are meant to be prescriptive. They're meant to tell us what to do. And obviously, we evolve and change in this kind of way. But, but at least the stories in the Torah are meant to describe the challenges of sibling interactions, of why do people lie? Why do people cheat? How do we respond when when we're being cheated? And it's not always the best response, right? The the most interesting stories are the ones where 
people are full human beings. And so I think a lot of that is to be able to say, I can see myself in that story, or I can at least see friends or family or our society reflected in the story here, because these are, these are not religious questions, they're human questions of mm-hmm. how do I act in the world? And when someone cheats me, how do I respond? Right. And, and I can see my, I can see myself and I can see my flaws mm-hmm. in the story. Right. And, and I think that ultimately one of the messages of Torah is that, that um, even in our deeply flawed, deeply imperfect state, we still have the capacity to do good and to be good and that, that we still have this capacity for salvation. Right. And by salvation, I mean, um, bringing goodness into the world, building and living the best lives we possibly can, even though sometimes we act like Jacob, you know, and Jacob actually grows over time anyway. We'll see Jacob in next week's Parsha uh, as a very different person than he was when he left, uh, when he ran away from his brother in last week's Parsha. So I, I agree with you. I see, I see these stories as reminding us about what it is to be human. And I appreciate that Torah doesn't try to make our stories about saints, about perfect people, about people who do no wrong. They do lots of wrong. And that includes everybody in the Torah, Abraham and Sarah, you know, all of the, all of the patriarchs and matriarchs. King David is a real doozy in terms of the way that, the way that he acts in the world, right? And ultimately, these are the people that we look to because we can, as you said, we can see ourselves both for better and for worse in the stories that our tradition has handed us. So I want to pause there if it's okay with you. Um, And we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about honesty, integrity, and Torah. And we'll find out a little more about the work that you do in thinking about science and Judaism. Sounds good. Hey, friends, while we're on our break, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I want to say a huge thank you to five new podcast sponsors this week. I need to get permission to share their names, so I won't do that until next week. But I am extremely grateful to them and to the other 20-something people who give a small amount each week to help support the production of 7-Minute Torah. And if you would also like to become a weekly supporter, you can do so at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash 7-Minute Torah. Secondly, as I think many of you know, I'm now running two weekly Torah study groups. A group for beginning Torah learners that meets on Tuesday afternoons, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific. And a group for anybody who wants to dig deeper that meets on Fridays at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific, just in time to get ready for Shabbat. If you'd like to join one of those two groups, you can do so at my website, micastreifer.com and by clicking on Torah Study. Now back to our conversation with Rabbi Jeff Middleman. All right, so we're back. Let me ask you a further question about this issue around lying and integrity. You started, before we started recording, you started to say something to me about the evolution of lying. And so I wanted, maybe you can tell us a little more about that and how it plays into this conversation we're having about the Parsha. Sure. Yeah. So this was something that our friend and colleague, uh, Rabbi Joshua Garraway said, and he quoted it in someone else, and it's, I'm sure it's someone else's name. We think that our brains are there to be able to find truth. And you know, we use science to be able to find truth. And science actually is very helpful for finding an accurate information, but our brains did not evolve for us to be able to find truth. Our brains evolved to keep us alive. When lying is evolutionarily advantageous, 
we are going to lie to ourselves. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to fall into that trap. We can obviously overcome a lot of our evolutionary background, but but quite immediately, our, our natural inclination, if it's going to be in our in our advantage to tell the truth, we're going to do that. If it's in our advantage to, to lie, we're likely to be able to do that. So it's interesting because at the same time, our moral compass and and by extension, then our the religious traditions that we create as human beings tell us that lying's not okay, right? right? So they act then to curtail certain tendencies that we might have as human beings because there is also something inside us that tells us that even though we might want to behave that way, it's not necessarily the most moral or the most ethical way to behave. Well, so I think I think that actually what's important to remember is that, and this is a little bit nuanced, is that the reason that our brains are so big is not because of language, not because of our hands, not because of tools, but because of our social connections. Our brain is actually able to remember more people than, than most other primates. And one of the things that we remember are the relationships of who do we trust, who has trusted us, who's cheated us, who do we like? And, and so there's actually a good evolutionary reason to trust other people and to be trustworthy. When you've got a certain amount of resources, when you've only a certain amount of meat particularly, uh, which was a very precious resource, you need to be able to work with other people. And and you and sometimes the hunters are going to succeed and others are going to fail. So, okay, so I, if I succeed, I'll give you some of my meat right now because next week you'll give some to me. And that becomes the the, the value of being able to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. We are part of a society here. If we think about, for example, the, the, the role of religion, in a lot of ways, the reason religion and particularly law existed was because it tried to create trust on a much larger larger level than, than would have happened on the African savanna, where just you knew everybody. Trust is great and it obviates the need for law. Um, and so, right, so, so if I say, Micah, I'm gonna give you 10 bucks, and, and you, we know each other, like you can trust that I'm gonna give you 10 bucks, or we said like, we're gonna meet at this time in this place, like you can trust me that we're gonna do this. We didn't have to sign a nine page legal document. Hmm. Um, but when we're signing for a house, of that amount of money, that's why you need to have legal documents. And uh, and when you've got more and more people, that's why you need religion to be able to, to have. In other words, our societies have outgrown our original capabilities or tendencies. And so we need constructs like religion mm-hmm. and law in order to manage ourselves in this much more complex world that humans have built. Right. I mean, if you think about, you know, if you have... $10, that $10, it's just a piece of paper or it's a bunch of zeros and ones. It is inherently useless, right? If society were to collapse, we would be using money for kindling. But in fact, it's incredibly valuable because we've all agreed it's valuable. And uh, and that and that's that's taken a lot of time to be able to, to create in the same way law, right? Law exists because we agree that we're all going to follow the law. Right. Noah Yuval Harari, this, I think he's a sociologist, writes about the human capacity for imagination, that we are able to dream up and imagine constructs that don't exist in nature. Money is one of the examples that he gives. Money only exists or it only has meaning. It only has value because we have all agreed that it has such value. And, and nationality and religion and ethnicity and language 
these are all actually the same. You know, you and I feel connected to each other because we're both Jewish, even though you're a Yankee fan and I'm a Blue Jay fan. And even though you live in the United States and I live in Canada, right? We have all these things that are not in common. Mm -hmm. And yet the thing that we do have in common, which in many ways is an imagined thing, right? Mm -hmm. And by imagined, I mean, it's something that we've both decided is important. And so we feel connected to one another based on this, these constructs that we, that we believe in, that we've created. And even questions of identity and self-identity. There's a, uh, some work from a friend of mine, of uh, Professor Dave Dostano, who's done a lot of work about compassion. And what he's discovered is that one of the things that engenders compassion in others is a point of similarity. Okay. So if you and I say, I'm a Yankees fan, you're a Blue Jays fan, right? We're going to be at loggerheads. It would be worse if it was Yankees and Red Sox. But if there's a piece of, we both like baseball, then all of a sudden there's a point of, of, of commonality. Um, or if you find you know, we both were ordained from the same seminary and we're in the same place. These, even, even imagined constructs can engender compassion in other people. Um, and I think that's it with the, with the political discourse, right? It's, it's, it's the left versus the right. I'm on this side and I am very much against who you are. And that, and there's, look, there is value in that when it becomes a, a constructive conversation, but there's also value of like, we are, Canadian citizens, we are, we are, we care about our community, right? There, there's ways in which you can, you can engender and even invent these, these similarities. And that creates much more compassion and, and, and togetherness. Right. It shows what a double-edged sword these things are because they have the power, this very powerful ability to both unite and divide. We, we need, we need identity. We can't actually function without identity. And yet identity is all, almost by definition, they both unite us and divide us at the same time. So let's take a step back because we've been talking all, a lot already about the intersection between religion and science. And, and I know that's your life's work. So mm -hmm. will you tell us about Sinai and Synapses and the work that you do? I would love to. Thank you. Yeah. So Sinai and Synapses, aims to be able to elevate the discourse, particularly around science and religion, because the science and religion discourse is a proxy for the larger toxic discourse that's been happening in our society right now, where it used to be one side was, oh, that's interesting, tell me about where you're coming from. And then it became, no, I'm right. Then it became, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Then it became, I'm right, you're stupid. And now it's, I'm right, you're evil. Hmm. And, and that's there's a perception that one side is viewed as often scientific and educated and liberal, and the other side is viewed as religious and uneducated and conservative. And there's a belief that if you buy anything from either of those columns, you've got to buy everything in that column. And even better if you demonize the other side. And, and what we think is, is, first of all, the biggest questions that we're facing in this world of like climate change and even questions of like artificial intelligence, bioethics. These are questions where religion has something to say about it and science has something to say about it. And, and we need to be able to actually talk about these in a constructive kind of way. And because science does not necessarily approach questions of, of values and religion also in my mind is, is not a science textbook, how do we approach these kinds of questions from both perspectives? So that's a lot of, that's our mission is, is how do we talk about this and showcase the ways we can think about these kinds of conversations. And so, and so, how do you go about doing that? How are you leading yeah. these conversations? So we we have a, we have a few different projects uh, that are that are funded from a few different foundations. One is predominantly in the Jewish community uh, that's funded by the John Templeton Foundation called Scientists in Synagogues. Of how many amazing top-notch scientists are there who are members of synagogues, 
and don't get to actually talk about their scientific work uh, and the rabbi to actually get to know a little bit of their congregants who they may not necessarily know um, and to explore some of these different kinds of questions. So we've had um, everything from the science of memory. We've had, we've had neuropsychologists who look at the science of memory and then use that to talk about Pesach and, and what's the role of memory to um, somebody who was involved in the James Webb telescope and how did that influence his view on awe and majesty to another synagogue that is looking at military technology and what's the role of lasers and the role of light and, and looking at that at Genesis 1. So, you know, we look at anything and everything that you can talk about. We funded 50 synagogues from all across North America, including a, a couple in Canada. And there's going to be a next round that's going to be opening up in, in January. For if so, if listeners are interested, you can bring it up in you or with your with your leadership here um, to be able to explore some of these questions. So that's that's one of our initiatives. Uh, we also have an interfaith fellowship where we bring together scientists and clergy and writers. And that's also from all, now it's actually all over the world. We've had a few from Canada. Um, one is a one is a pastor in, in Calgary. Uh, one was a rabbi in Toronto, um, and people from Brazil and the UK, but also Arkansas and Utah, and uh, you know, you name it. We've got people coming from all around, uh, of bringing people together to be able to explore some of these huge questions and and learn from each other and build connections and relationships they wouldn't have built otherwise. Amazing. It, it's it's really interesting what you say because, of course. People do often think that science and religion are at odds with each other. And, you know, Genesis 1 is the best example. You know, either God made the world in seven days or the world exists as we know it because of the Big Bang and evolution and the laws of science. And 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 I think people then look at the text and they say, well, I don't believe that. Right. Therefore, I can't buy into that side of it. I can't buy into religion. Whereas I... I've always thought, and I'm sure you agree, that the Torah is not attempting to answer scientific questions. That's just not what it's doing. And that it's not meant to be read. I think you actually said something like this. It's not meant to be read as a science textbook. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and that becomes a question of um in, in the Jewish community of of if there's a perception that one side is you know, at least non-Orthodox Jews tend to be scientifically minded, tend to be educated, tend to be a little bit more politically liberal. That's where they put themselves. And then they say, well, if that's what religion is. I don't want to have any part of that, which puts the, the Jewish community in an odd spot of like, who, who am I? Where do I fit? And, and some of that is we need to talk about that in a, in a different way, with different language um, and different examples of people saying, I embrace both of these things and here's how I approach it without necessarily papering over the, di the differences um, and the challenges, because there, there are some challenges there. Um, but but one line that we say is that you know the biggest challenges that we face in this world are not religious and they're not scientific they're human. Right, and ultimately we need to be we need to be asking these questions through both lenses and and also recognizing that when we talk about the dichotomy that that dichotomy is is already an artificial exactly. is an artificial construct that a person can believe deeply in the power of science to teach us how the world works and also read Torah and participate in religious activity and understand, even from a scientific perspective, as you were explaining before, just how important religious activity and, and asking and religious text and asking these important why questions are in our lives. And, and, and it also goes the other way as well. And I think, you know, one thing, great example of this is 
is a better understanding of LGBTQ identity. Um, because that's the way that that the understanding of what that identity is, how it's formed, science is informed what that means. It, and then and then it's also changed the way that religion has has shifted, right? Like that's the way that we read some of these texts, which are very challenging. They're read very differently in the mid, you know, in 2022 than they were read in the 1900s. Um, as, we, as we're discovering new information of what does it mean to be human and, and what are the different various ways in which we express who we are as human beings. Yeah, because, of course, social science is science. Right. And there are lots of things that we learn about ourselves, about humanity, from psychology, sociology, these, these scientific um, approaches. In fact, just last night, just last night, I was teaching a class on essentially on reproductive um, rights in, in Jewish law. And somebody asked me, how do you see this discussion continuing to evolve halakhically as you go forward? And, and in that moment, it occurred to me almost exactly what you said, which is that one of the things that one of the ways that the discussion around reproductive rights has has um, shifted over the last 50 years, similarly to the way that discussion has shifted around um, LGBTQ issues, is that the science has helped us to understand things differently than we did before. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we now understand more about mental health. We understand more about LGBTQ issues. We understand more about um, about health care and about, uh, you know, all of these areas that surround the decisions that we make and our halakhic literature and the way that we approach these issues as religious people has actually changed based on the way that we have shifted in our understanding of the world. That's exactly right. And you know, the, there's questions of science and the technology, being able to also understand what is, when is when is viability, what is what is possible, what are the what are the medical risks that if you're able to if you're able to get access to the to the um, to the need, it's it's much less dangerous than it was, right? That changes the calculus as well, right? There's there's all sorts of ways in which the science and the technology is changing what that conversation is. And that's true across the religious spectrum. I'm thinking of a passage I read last night, and right now I can't remember the citation, but it's from an Orthodox rabbi living in Israel, still alive today. And again, it's not that I intend fully to talk about abortion here, but that's what's on my mind because we were talking about it last night. And where this rabbi essentially says, in this modern era where technology can tell us different things about viability of a fetus, about mental health, about... Um, the, the the potential health risks to fetus and and um, pregnant person, we have to think differently about what the halakhic rulings might be. So, and, and in his particular case, he said there is more space to be lenient because of the things that we understand now that we didn't understand then. And that's in an orthodox context. Yep. And that's, and, and we've had one of our synagogues had somebody speak about self-driving cars and the analogy with the ox that gores. And right, we, Self-driving cars, that's, a, that's, that's very foreign to biblical and Talmudic text, but it's a question of this is going to have a, a, a benefit. It's going to make life easier and, and society better. There is also, it is not a question of if, it is going to be a question of when it, it's going to hurt somebody. Who is responsible? How do we make restitution? There, there are complicated questions here. So there's actually, there's some wisdom from biblical and rabbinic sources of looking at something that, that, 
we would never even thought about 15, 20 that's, years ago. That's very interesting. And the reality is that Judaism has always been facing new technologies and new scientific learning. You know, Maimonides wrote a thousand years ago that you need to take truth from whatever source you find it. And he, he didn't have science quite in our modern sense, but he did believe in science in the sense that a person in the 12th century could believe in science. And so it's not, it's not like this is new. It's just that we're living in an era of extraordinary polarization and maybe we need to be looking at it, looking at it through new eyes. And, and the one last piece to, to complicate it and make it more interesting is I, I gotta, I have to give a, a, a shout out to one of my uh, friends of Professor Chandy Lombroso, who's done really interesting stuff of raising these questions about facts of, uh, she does a lot of stuff with, with kids of asking questions of, uh, you know, I, you're, I think you're wearing a, you think you're wearing a blue sweater. I think I'm wearing a red sweater. Um, is one of us right and the, one of us wrong? And the answer is, is yes, of course. Like you are wearing a blue sweatshirt. I'm, you're not wearing a red sweater. You can also ask kids of um, which is, which is the best, uh, which is the best ice cream flavor. You like strawberry. I like mint chocolate chip. Is one of us right and one of us wrong? And then the answer is no. Like we can have different opinions on this. And then you ask kids, all right, is there a God? Hmm. Is that a factual question or is that an opinion question? And that's something that comes up a lot with, with questions of, of both religion and politics, right? When we're talking about these kinds of questions, are we talking about them as opinions or are we talking about them as facts or are we talking about them as something else? And I think that's where so much of the interesting conversations come in, um, whatever that topic is, but of, of raising this question of making, making sure, like, are we talking facts? Are we talking opinions? Or are we talking about something else? Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I will say, you know, when it comes to baseball, you're definitely wrong. <laughs> um, so if people want to read more about the work that you're doing through Sinai and Synapses, where can they do that? So, th so they can go on our website. They're at Sinai and Synapses, uh, A-N-D is spelled out, dot org. Uh, you can also follow us on, on all those wonderful social media channels. I'm not going to say any of them because who knows which are still going to be existing in a few years, mm -hmm. uh, but the usual social media channels. And, and I'm also on Twitter at Rabbi Mittelman, M-I-T-E-L-M-A-N. Great. And I'll put some of that in the um, the notes for the episode as well, if people want to want to be able to follow you and read more about your work. Can I ask you a completely unrelated question just for fun? Absolutely. You probably know what's coming. I know that you were on Jeopardy not long ago. I'd love to hear about the experience of being on Jeopardy. It was one of the highlights of my life. Um, I actually wrote a whole wrote a whole piece about it. I wrote a whole series of of posts about it. Um, it was it was so much fun, and and the the thing that was that was the most fun was you, you obviously put a lot of pressure on yourself. But I went in and I went in and I, and I went in going. I said, I am, I am ultimately going to lose, right? Somewhere like it may be my first game and maybe my 20th game, but, but I recognize like, this is going to be hard and I'm going to lose, but I'm still going to have fun. And so man, when I finished in second place and I didn't win, it was still like, I was walking away with the biggest smile on my face. Cause it was, uh, it was so fantastic. And like in anything, in a, when there's a niche community, there's this wonderful community of, of contestants were just the nicest, most curious people ever. Did you find yourself, this is what I'm afraid of, that mm -hmm. I would just, my mind would go blank in the moment and I would know the answer, but then I couldn't access it because of the pressure. That that happened. Actually, luckily I was able to ring in. Um, 
you know, don't don't judge anybody uh, until you actually have been there, right? So, so if you watch Jeopardy, you go, I can't believe that idiot didn't know that. Right. You don't realize, like, unless you're under the lights, right? That's a. Um, but yeah, there was there was a because I do a lot of crosswords, and the clue, the category was prepositions, and it was in the top box. It was a two hundred dollar clue. It says these two prepositions are critical in crosswords, and and I was thinking and thinking and thinking. The person rang in and got it wrong. And then I rang in and I just sort of froze there. And then finally I, I got there. I'm like, what are across and down? Hmm. Um, but that's my, my favorite was actually the first clue that, because the, the champion chooses the first clue. The champion chose a $1,000 clue in the first round. And it is, they, they film it live. And so like, I, I had no recollection. I remember like how I lost in some of the details. I didn't remember anything. So we had a big watch party two months after it aired. And I saw the, the champion choose the $1,000 clue. And when I'm watching it on the air, I went, I have no idea. Like I have no collection. And then I saw myself ring in and get it right. And I was like, what? I, I knew that, <laughs> like, I had, like, that's, which is a whole question about how memory works, right? Of like, what's, what do you remember and how do you remember things? Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like an out of body experience watching yourself do something that you only kind of remember happening. Totally, totally. And um, are you, you said you're still in touch with some of the other contestants. I so I am part of uh, of an online online uh, trivia league called Learned League, which is fun. And I literally every day text with one of my tape day buddies. I texted with him this morning of like we check out like how we did each day. Um, so I and and there's there's a whole there's a whole online community, but like. There's there's a few people that I'm still really really close with, and but my my friend Sean from uh, from my tape day, like we we text basically every single day. That's great. You know, back to our need for community and connecting with people through shared experience, right? Exactly, exactly. And and there's something that's you know that's that's unique of like being in the being in the Jewish community that is unique in the rest of American society. And it's uh, and you know people are able to whatever whatever you're able to find that that distinguishes you and gives you joy that's, there's nothing better than that. I love that, thank you. Um, if you don't mind, do you have a few more minutes? Sure. All right, I wanna ask you two last questions. These are the okay. questions that I ask everybody that I interview. And um, they are about ritual and books, which I think are two of the most important things in Judaism. So I'm curious if there is a particular Jewish ritual that you find meaningful mm -hmm. in your own life. And then the second question, I'll give you a moment to think about it while you're answering the first one is, what book do we all need to read? Okay, so there's a lot of ritual. One that one that I have really grown to love is uh, we do have Dala with with my kids, and and I love it. And and then at the end, they they sing. Uh, we all sing the Twisted Candle, which is a reform movement song. It's not a camp. If you've been in a reform camp, you know it. Yep, but, I know it. Yep. Yep. If you've been, ever been to a reformed Jewish camp, like, you know, and it's a, like, it is, it is such a cheesy song and it but just puts such a big smile on us and our kids, we dance around and they say like, okay, first each, each person takes a turn in the middle and then it's not only the kids now it's the adults. And like, even when it's a stressful, you know, trying to get them to do anything, like it just, it, 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 it ends our, our week, um, our, it ends our Shabbat so joyfully, um, and and our kids will run and give us these gigantic hugs. I don't know if they still will when they're teenagers, but when they're seven and nine, 
Yeah, I love Havdalah also. It's always, to me, such a beautiful way to end Shabbat. My kids who are old and older than yours, who are all teenagers, they don't run and hug me anymore. But but I have these wonderful memories of making Havdalah together as a family. And I do love that song that you're talking about. I believe it's by Jeff Klepper, uh, but I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it seems like something that he would have written. Um, and then a book that I think everyone should read. So, so it's now 10 years old, but it still is very relevant of, um, called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by John Haidt, um, who is a social psychologist. And he gives a good explanation as to, again, why everybody sees themselves as the hero of their own story um, and the and the role, particularly, I think it's it's gotten even worse since 2012 because I think that's when it was published, of of politics becoming a new religion, um, and 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 it helps explain a little bit of the deterioration of of where we are, and it's helped me as somebody who tends to be more on the left to at least understand where people on the right are making their decisions from, and 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 it prevents me from from demonizing them. I still disagree, but I at least can understand what the thought process is. And it also helps me understand a little bit more of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, a little bit understanding of, of Leviticus and why Leviticus was written the way it was written. That's a book I think everyone should read. And the other book I think that I highly recommend, I'm going to take two, uh, is called Origin Story um, by a guy named David Christian, who wrote a book, he, he is the founder of what's called the Big History Project of how can we tell a clear, coherent story from the Big Bang to today using the best, accurate, most coherent science that we have today. And it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book that allows us to be able to understand our humanity in a, in a much, much broader sense. Interesting. Thank you for those recommendations. And again, I'll put those into the episode notes as well for our listeners. And that really brings us back full circle back to our origin story that we're reading in Torah and these stories of these imperfect people trying to move their way through the world, doing, doing the best they can. So uh, Rabbi Jeff Middleman, Jeff, I want to thank you for spending some time talking with me today. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be able to, to catch up and, and it's a terrific podcast. Thank you. That's my conversation with Rabbi Jeff Middleman. If you want to access his work and his writings, again, you can go to sinaiandsynapses.org, and I'll put that into the episode notes. When we meet again next week, we will explore Parshat Vaishlach as we continue the story of Jacob and continue our way through the Torah. Have a great week, everyone. See you then. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7minutetorah. To join one of our new weekly Torah study discussions on Zoom, go to micastreifer.com and click on Torah Study. 